Hi, everyone. Thank you yet again for being at a new session. This one is a very special one for me. Like every stream I almost do is a very special one, but this one is very dear to my heart. Uh, for those who know me and know that I love the Trinity and the doctrine right after Trinity is one of my favorite. And uh, the guest who I have today is, in my estimation, uh, someone who is competent enough in order to give a, a presentation for your average layman. Not to mention that I'm a layman myself. I need to learn a lot more. Every one of us need to, but it's always good to come together and to, yeah, let, let the Bible speak for itself. And let's see what orthodoxy in, in its totality has to say about one of the most exciting topics there actually are, in my, my opinion. My guest today has his PhD from the Graduate Theological Union, where his research focuses on new religious movements and trends within America. In addition to his research into the occult, the new age, and psychedelic spirituality. Born and raised in Indiana, it was at IUPUI where he completed his graduate studies with a major in religious studies, minor in biology, and an academic certificate in Mandarin Chinese. He received his master's degree from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in religious studies. He has almost 10,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel called Church of the Eternal Logos. Uh, he is in an online classroom setting. He's explicating the Orthodox Church, and in my estimation, one of the best, best Orthodox apologists out there. David Patrick Harry, welcome to the Floor Armor Apologetics channel. Thank you very much, brother. I appreciate it. That was, that was a very kind introduction. Thank you. No problem. All the glory uh, for what you've done so far. Uh, we just already were talking before how long you're already putting the content out there. And that's been going uh, exponentially up, isn't it? Yeah, it's been going good. I'm very thankful for the community that's really been kind of growing around the whole process. Because as you create content, and a lot of my content is just me putting out ideas that I've kind of extrapolated together. Um, you never know how it's going to be received. And so I've been doing uh, it steady since September of 2019. And so I think that was when it was about three to 400 subs. And so hopefully a little about two and a half years, I'll be at 10,000. And then hopefully in a year from that. Uh, so December of 2022, maybe somewhere close to 20,000. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's turned into a sort of ministry. At first, it was sort of a, a project of me explaining myself to people because where I came from, uh, as you mentioned, having studied East Asian tradition, spent time in China, did a master's degree focused on Gnosticism and uh, psychedelic shamanism, and then getting into my PhD program where I was really focused on people who were spiritual, not religious, and very interested in the uh, use of psychedelic drugs for spiritual purposes that uh, through a sort of winding road that ended up leading me to orthodoxy and then people kind of shocked by that endpoint, trying to explain why and how I got there through Church of the Eternal Logos, basically. Yeah, because my next question actually was, um, can you tell us uh, how you came to Christianity, in particular Orthodoxy, and why it is that you do what you do? Like I already introduced you in the big lines, but can you tell us what your motivation is of why you're doing it? Um. I would say that my motivation is to discuss what is true. And that's kind of propelled me throughout most of my journey uh, into orthodoxy. So 
Um, I grew up in a sort of conservative Methodist home. I uh, would go to church every Sunday. It was kind of a nominal uh, faith. Uh, and when I got well out of high school, I went to a school to play basketball. It's called Manchester College. And when I had a heart murmur there, uh, it took me a while to get cleared by the local hospital and the season already started and all this different stuff. And so I wasn't really feeling it. And I decided not to continue to play and go to school there. So that coming uh, fall or spring semester, I transferred to IUPUI, as you mentioned, and that's where I basically finished out my undergraduate studies. And I thought I was going to devote my life to Christ at first. And then after doing that, um, I took a Bible class at the university and that introduced me to a lot of the academic uh, skeptical scholarship regarding scripture, um, authenticated authorities and authors regarding all this stuff. And that kind of blew my mind from the naive Methodist uh, upbringing that I had. So that led to um, diving into the sort of spiritual dot religious new age use of psychedelic drugs for spiritual purposes and uh, literally took me to the other side of the earth uh, over to China and I spent two summers there and then back to Illinois and then eventually over to Berkeley California and so long story short is actually in Berkeley California doing research on this book right here uh, the psychedelic gospels and so um this book is talking about the appearance of Amanita muscaria mushrooms in Western Christian frescoes, specifically in Italy, Germany, France, and England. And so that really got me interested in this whole thing because I was already had a previous YouTube channel. It still exists. Uh, all the videos are mostly taken down, but um it had uh, it has over 80, 80 some thousand subs that hadn't been any videos uploaded in a couple of years. But um, I was promoting the use of psychedelics. I really thought psychedelics were the frontier, the leading edge of the spiritual religious phenomenon that has been I at that time perceived it to be a sort of very various cultural expressions and uh, contextual expressions of what religious is, what religion religiosity is who is god all this different stuff and doing all those drugs um i was convinced this was the sort of profound mystery that all this stuff was kind of uh obfuscating in one way or another that religion functions in a lot of different sociological ways and so obviously the phenomenology of just taking drugs doesn't create a societal fabric mythology and all this stuff so i saw religion as kind of harnessing this whole thing together and that mysticism religious mysticism was sort of the the psychedelic mystery in some sort and so um once I saw the book by Jerry and Julie Brown on the psychedelic gospels, I started to do my own deep dive into this idea that potentially Christianity was psychedelic in origin and that uh, the Eucharist could be a misunderstanding. And so there's a famous scholar named John Marco Allegro, and he wrote a whole book talking about he was a Dead Sea Scroll scholar and based on um, his, his research in Qumran on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, was supposed to be a, a, he was a expert on various dead languages that he believed that uh, Jesus Christ was not a historical person, but was actually a mushroom. And so this was already a theory within world religions. 
And so tying that together with this book and then looking at uh, this stuff, it got me really interested. Now, by the end of that first semester doing a di deep dive into research into that book, I was convinced, well, it's, in, it's very interesting. Uh, clearly, there, there are mushroom frescoes in Western Europe. Clearly, there was use of psychoactive mushrooms as Eucharistic uh, substances. Was it the tradition of Christianity at large? Uh, it didn't look like it. It looked like it was a contextual phenomenon. All the frescoes were between the years of the 10 hundreds of the 11th century to really the 14th century, the 13 hundreds. And so that led to um, diving a little bit deeper and wanting to see if any of this stuff was in Eastern Europe. So there was a book by R. Gordon Wasson and his wife, Valentina Pavlovna, called Russia or Mushrooms, Russia and History. And, and Slavic cultures, but Eastern cultures, generally speaking, tend to have a more uh, a philic relationship to mushrooms than Western Europe. So Western Europe is not as common, although you can look in the linguistic evidence within French and Italian, you're going to see many more connections than you would say, you know, the Germans. But uh, within Eastern Slavic, uh, particularly Russian, you'll see a lot of names, hundreds of terms for mushrooms. And it's very common to take, uh, you know, children out into the woods to pick different mushrooms and do all these types of stuff. So that led to me thinking, well, I bet at the time I was dating an East, uh, a Ukrainian girl and she was Eastern Orthodox. And so I thought, oh, I bet if I take a course with the Eastern Orthodox group there at the university, I bet uh, I can dive into more of their iconography and maybe I'll find some of the mushroom stuff that I was seeing in the West. That led to me doing a real deep dive, forcibly having to read Orthodox theology in that class. So beginning with uh, the church fathers, some of the church fathers, St. Athanasius, I remember I read him, more of the contemporary theologians, Stanilo, Florovsky, Lotsky, Luth, uh, even read a little Bokakov, who's he's a bit of a heretic. Uh, but um, all these different contemporary Orthodox theologians, especially the ones fleeing Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, that this concept of logos was really interesting. And that was tied with the, the sort of phenomenal rise of Jordan Peterson and um, this whole sort of discussion of logos in a very austere, de-theologized de uh, understanding where there's no, it's not Christ, it's like truth, it's, it's logic, it's reason, which again, it's almost like the platonic logos to a degree. And so I thought that was really interesting. And then seeing this theology that Eastern Orthodoxy had surrounding it was very different than the West. And it was way more sophisticated than I would have suspected. And so, again, uh, I guess long story long, uh, after a while, that began to weigh on me because I was a non-believer through that class. I was a non-believer after that class. Um, I was a non-believer through that summer. And eventually that next fall, by doing my own research, eventually reading St. Maximus the Confessor and, and diving deeper into this Logos theology and looking at the Logos Logi distinction, um, that I thought this was really, really interesting. And eventually um, in November of 2018, I remember the day it was 11-11-18, that I just felt a profound... Um, transformation in my heart and I gave my life to Christ that day and knew that something about this orthodox stuff it, that it was true 
Um, but it's been a process since then of, of learning more and more about orthodoxy, uh, diving deeper into my faith and trying to live it out. That is a process. And so I'm always very skeptical of the Orthodox online that are very eager, very fervent, and almost like uh, evangelicals that they have these immediate transformations. Like one day they're something else, the next day all of a sudden they're Eastern Orthodox because most of the people I've met, it's a process. And the people who go through the process where it's a long stage of minor transformations, they stay Orthodox. Where I've noticed since doing this Church of the Eternal Logos for two years, I've met so many people who uh, have fallen away. And that seems to be a very common pattern of getting interested in orthodoxy or using orthodoxy for the cultural politics of it because of the understandings of sexual morality or this or that. And then once it uh, comes to going to church regularly, being part of a faith community, partaking in the Eucharist, uh, six months, a year later, they're not there, or they never went in the first place. And it was just a sort of identity online. It's just a way to be a part of a group that that allows you to talk in more traditional ways regarding culture, ethics, morality, all this different stuff. So anyways, yeah. that's eventually how I got introduced to Eastern Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodox theology. And that's how uh, that's what eventually led then is I had a, an extensive background in Gnosticism. And really, that's what this whole shelf down here is uh, devoted to is like, uh, books and theories about Gnosticism that people uh, aren't, aren't as aware of. I, uh, I wanted to do more content regarding Gnosticism. I actually haven't done a whole lot, but that was when I first started Church of the Eternal Logos. I was talking a lot about Gnosticism and different Gnostic groups and Gnostic sects. Um, and so of which I know that you have Armenian heritage. Uh, I should be getting my book today, which is sort of uh, the the book on the Polycinians. And so they were a Gnostic heretical group out of Armenia. Uh, my girlfriend is actually Armenian. I'm sure she'll be watching this. So shout ah. out to Diana. Um, so I know uh, due to her, definitely am well, well more informed on uh, Armenia, its history, the various kingdoms, St. Gregory, uh, all that different stuff. And so uh, she and I have really been doing a lot of research together, and um, the Paulicinianism is a Gnostic heresy that really gets going and sort of housed in Armenia from the 1700 or the 700s to the 900s. Eventually, they get kicked out. They move over to Bulgaria, where uh, the other uh, the Bogomils, another Gnostic Christian group, kind of allows them to, to exist, and then the Bogomils really exert a lot of influence onto the Cathars. And this is where then this, this the whole uh, understanding of these mushrooms all come in, because really what my research has showed now is that it's related to Gnostic heresies from the ancient world and that these Gnostic groups were actually preserving the mystery traditions of ancient Rome, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, and that uh, they were combining these ancient mysteries with Christian forms of theology. Now, again, that's why the Orthodox Church was always trying to fight these things. And they would flee to places like Armenia post-schism, where they already had, you know, Nestorianism and all this different stuff. Um, so they would go to, they, they, you know, Bulgaria allowed them to exist. So we see that these ancient heresies then flourish within these Gnostic sects. And then people during the Crusades, like the Knights Templars, the Knights Hospitallars, they go back to the Holy Land and they re-encounter people still doing these things, like the Manichaeans. And they 
reinterpret their Christianity in this Gnostic lens and bring this back to Europe. And that's why then all of our, uh, all the evidence of these mushrooms from the 10 hundreds to the 13 hundreds are contextualized because that's during the time of the crusades. And that's when then the inquisition really heats up and they try to totally squash this. So the leader of the Knights Templar gets killed. I think it's 1314. And so the 14th century, and that's when all this stuff goes underground and you see it reemerge in Northern Europe in the name of Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, all the secret societies. And so that's then how this drug use was actually maintained in Europe was through the secret societies. And so, uh, yeah, sorry. Anyways, I'm rambling a bit, but that's- uh, No, no, no. That was that was uh, that was some fruitful. What was it? I don't know. Five minutes plus. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Every bit of it was amazing. And there were so many uh, allies that we could take on. <laughs> if it comes to J- Jordan Peterson, I 100% agree with you. Like I've mentioned him already so many times, I'm going to keep mentioning him. But the whole problem with not problem, the challenge with Jordan Peterson is that he. What was it like a month ago? He he said that he believed that. John on Patmos, when he received revelation, that was a psychedelic experience. And I was like, oh boy. Yeah. Like he's just behind us, very arrogantly speaking, but um, you'll yeah. get there. God willing, you get there. Yeah. It's, uh, I watched a few of, of Peterson's interviews, and that's where the, the psychedelics, I think, is an interesting, uh, pivotal point of emphasis, even for today's conversation with theosis, because when we look at apotheosis, the psychedelics in these Gnostic practices, you know, exactly how do you become one with God? This is the nature of mysticism at large, generally speaking. So is it through yoga? Is it through uh, Taoist, uh, you know, Tai Chi movements? Is it through understanding one's chi? Is it through, you have all these different understandings of how one unifies themselves with God. And I think psychedelics, uh, because of the radical nature of these experiences, and, and then often the spiritual uh, content people witness within it, that um, it is the it's an easy way to point at this this it seems subtle but it's a major distinction between orthodox theosis and these other sort of worldly forms of apotheosis yeah because one thing that you mentioned already was that um, uh, if it comes to conversion it comes to strengthening yourself in the faith it's a very long process and yeah. one of the things that we, for instance, believe is sanctification. Mm-hmm. When a moment you have Christ in your heart and there all the way throughout the time, we are living up more to his potential, as Jordan Peterson would put it. And I think rightfully <laughs> so, rightfully so. But um, for instance, if it comes to my own way of thinking, like I'm not swearing anymore. I'm trying yeah. to be far away of these type of stuff. I, n- I didn't even watch myself i'm just like wait a minute for the past couple of years i didn't never swear anymore or did vulgar stuff like by the grace of his god by the grace of god of course but i do believe there's this sanctification process yes and that is what we're going to talk about today so yes to to let's uh just to dive uh, a little bit deeper into the subject uh, what can the christian layman understand of the term theosis what is it so theosis really just means deification. Um, and so I think that to unpack that in the Orthodox context, because this is the nature with Orthodox theology, and I think this is why it's so obscure for most people, is that we don't have a systematic theology like the West does. And so you so we, we don't just say, oh, it's the you know, everything has a definitional uh, reason for it, that everything in Orthodoxy connects to everything else. And so to talk about theosis, 
you almost have to know what the energy essence distinction is. And so uh, to begin, so theosis is this doctrine that as Orthodox Christians, we become gods by grace. What, what God is by nature, we become by grace. And so St. Athanasius has the famous quote that God became man, so man can become God, but God with a little g. And it's highlighting that man never becomes God by essence. He, got, he becomes God by participation in God's activities or his energies. And so activity and essence is a big deal when you start looking in Western scholasticism, uh, Thomistic theology and all this stuff, going back to Aristotle and substance and accidents and all this different stuff. But the Eastern Orthodox Church, this is the thing, is that our church fathers were aware of all this. It's very sophisticated in how it's understood to make sure it doesn't contradict itself. And so to begin... I think is to talk about the energy essence distinction. So in Eastern Orthodoxy, that's the one of the, it's the unique features of Orthodoxy itself is that um, the essence of God has no describer and has no cataphatic description other than it's one person or one, one essence, three persons. So that's the only thing we say about the essence of God is that it comes from the father. He's the sole arche and that it has three persons and, and the three persons are unified by one essence. And so the essence energy distinction is separating God's essence from his energetic activities. And so um, the, the whole concept of essences is really a large, large window into the world of philosophy. For example, the one in the mini regarding. Exactly. I got that here. Uh, two of Bradshaw's. Uh, I read it like a month ago. I had contact with him. Uh, God willing, soon enough, within a couple of weeks, I'll have him on my show as well. And we're going to go uh, dive a little bit deeper on the essence energy distinction, but very good point. It's not that we will become like uh, the, the, we will delve into the, into the Godhead of the Trinity. So it's not mm -hmm. that we'll become four in one, five in one, not in that sense, but in, as you mentioned before, gods with a lower G. Right. And so um, Plato and, and a lot of the Greek philosophy was dealing with the problem of what's called the one and the many. So there's, there's multiple, there's many dogs, but there's one thing that we call dogness or dog essence. Same thing with humanity, same thing with trees, same thing with any, any thing that we see in the world. There is some unity amongst all these things that have plurality. And so obviously then there's human essence and there's all these types of humans. So essence is this idea, philosophically speaking, that again, the Greeks were dealing with before Christianity of, of what is the thing that unifies groups. So when we talk about God's essence, we're talking about like his nature, the thing that is his ontological self that is distinct from everything else. God has one essence, but he has three persons. And so we see then in our Godhead as Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Christians that the Godhead itself solves the one and the many that we're not Neoplatonists. We're not these people that say God is unity. God is oneness. God is the monad. God is the great one over and over and over. Because if we say that, then God being God can't be many. And therefore we put, we, we put God in a box, but because God is one essence with three persons, God is both one and many because the Orthodox God has no limitations, just like the Orthodox God is uncreated and yet he, be, he dives into his own creation. He has a beginning and an end point as man, yet at the same time, he's eternal. This is a breakdown of the dialectical, the dialectical categories that the Greek philosophical tradition is describing the monad from. And so we see that orthodox theology is unique and that this energy essence is describing the essence of God, 
but then the energies are how we engage in God. Because the problem with Western Catholicism and Western theology is they didn't have an adequate understanding of how exactly do you engage with God? Do you engage with God directly? They said, no, you engage with an analogy. And so um, orthodoxy says, no, you actually do engage directly in God. And you come to know God, three persons of the Godhead, and, the, and then therefore the, the essence of which those three persons unify through their energies, the same way that we have just met um, and you, we are coming to know each other through energetic activities, the way that I move my hands, the things that I say, the things that I do, all these things take energies and it's through energies that a person can recognize who another person is. This is also true for our created persons related to the uncreated persons of the Trinity itself, that we come to know these persons and thereby their essence through their energies. Same thing we do with anybody we meet in the world. And so through God's truth, through his love, through grace, through honor, through logic, through reason, all these are uncreated energies. And these things existed before the world. And that's why the world embodies these things, because the logos and the Trinity, uh, all three persons of the Trinity, um, you know, exert these energies, these actions, because it's reflective of the nature, but they're not synonymous. This is really, really important to distinguishing Eastern Catholic or Eastern Orthodox Catholicism versus Western Latin Catholicism, um, because as Orthodox, the energies are distinct from the essence. And so we then, as Orthodox Christians, go on this, the whole point of the Christian life is to engage in these uncreated energies. And by we being filled as a person with the energies, the actions of God, we come to know God, but by definition, we become filled with God and God's energy and God's energy can't die. And so this leads then a much more of a understanding of how it is that we don't die when we die because we're filled with that, which can never die the uncreated energies themselves. And so Christ's incarnation is the fulfillment of God's nature, fully God becoming fully man, human nature. And so before that, even with Adam and Eve, there's an ontological distinction, which there still is after Christ, but he bridges this in a really unique way that Adam and Eve weren't as close to God as you and I are right now, according to Eastern Orthodox theology, according to the incarnation of Christ himself. And, and so um, whether Adam and Eve fell or not, St. Maximus the Confessor claims that he would have still incarnated. Because the point of creation itself was the incarnation. The point of creation itself was always theosis. The point of, of God creating entities made in the likeness and image of the Trinity, imbued with things like free will, is that it could experience God's love, another uncreated energy, by free will. Because love can never be forced. And so therefore, God wanting to love something and it to experience his love has to have the ability to actually move away from him, or it's a forced, it's a constrained, it's not truly love. And so just like the Trinity, which is again, one and many, it, our God is not a monistic God that only loves itself. If you look in, in Neoplatonism, the whole nature of creation is that God's creates and then it's all supposed to come back to him and really then the whole point of creation was god to love himself and know himself but our our theology is very different it's that god actually makes creatures that are totally created in the image of the trinity 
unique persons with a theological understanding of personhood, therefore has the free will and the ability to participate in these uncreated energies that none of the other forms of creation is, ex is experiencing or participating in the same way we are, so that we can then freely choose God. And that's how then we go on to this process of theosis. You have to first choose God. This is where faith then is the first step. And so the Protestants aren't wrong. It's just there's a lot more that goes on after you have faith in Christ. Now it takes on all these actions and it, it talk, you know, belonging to the true church, belonging to the body of Christ, the church that the apostles left, partaking in the Eucharist, partaking in the sacraments, partaking in a true understanding of Christ's full revelation, which is Orthodox theology. And so through all this process, then we would say this is the grace of God, God creating us builds us through his energies and then through Christ's incarnation, which then because we fell, he has to also die on the cross for our sins. He also has to go to Hades, the harrowing of hell and smash the doors down and destroy death categorically because in Satan's greed, he takes in somebody who never sinned, violating the whole definition of what Hades was, it was, it was where sinful people went. So everybody post Adam and Eve besides uh, Elijah and um, Enoch. Enoch. Yeah. Besides them, everybody else was in, it was in Hades. And so he then goes in there, wasn't by definition even supposed to be, but Satan in his greed, because Satan cannot participate in these energies. So all these energies of God, because Satan has already separated himself from God, the opposite of these things are the only things that he can partake in. So that's why he's a distorter. He's a manipulator. He's a liar because everything he does is a mirroring. It's a reflection. It's a distortion of the true energies of God. Because that's that was, why, because that was my next question. Why do you think that theosis is so neglected? And I'm alluding to the demonic and deceptive uh, inversion of this doctrine because mm -hmm. the word theosis, if it, it's not about the words, it's about the concept that it represents, which is, which as, as uh, uh, Jay Dyer said it many times already, that is the gospel. If you are thinking about, it's not about uh, the book. It's not about the new Testament. It's not about uh, as the Muslims think that this book came from uh, God to Jesus, for instance. No, it's none of that. It's about this particular process that we are addressing right now. It right. was, as you mentioned before, which I found very well put, this was meant already all along right. because we were created to be with him, but we cannot be with him unless we are perfect as he is. And therefore we need to go into the process. But why do you think that this is so neglected? Um, hmm. So I think that um, it's a much more difficult. So, so again, the, the term apotheosis is the, when people think of theosis, what they tend to think of is apotheosis. And so the, theosis, as we are trying to highlight here, is still maintained an ontological distinction between that which is created and that which is uncreated. And it's through the created beings engaging in the uncreated energies that it can partake in something resembling, you know, the nature of God. I mean, well, it is the nature of God. It's just we don't take it on by essence. And so what apotheosis says is that you actually become God by essence. 
And this is what you'll see in, in most mystery traditions. This is what you'll see in a lot of forms of Hinduism, a lot of forms of Eastern mysticism and uh, forms of, of psychedelic uh, mysticism as well, is that one realizes that they are God as man in the universe and that there is no true uh, fundamental distinction between my realization that I am God and that which is already created and that this is some type of cosmic game. And therefore, uh, you know, as Alan Watts used to say, uh, the inside reflects the outside uh, good. You know, there is no such thing as good without bad. Yeah. And so Alan then, Watts had a big influence on me as well. <laughs> so then apotheosis is tied up within this paradigm, which orthodoxy doesn't engage in. And so in our theosis, getting back to Satan and these and these energies and, and the things that he does and he engages in um, the opposite of God's uncreated energies do not have what we would call a positive existence. And so if truth is an uncreated energy of God, falsehood is not equal to it's not like the same thing, but um, it, it's the opposite of it's what we would call it has a negative existence. The only thing that exists in the universe in creation is God. And then because we're in a dualistic framework, things that are the absence of God still have what we would consider a negative existence. So falsehood is the absence of God's truth. It's not that falsehood is a thing. Falsehood is like a shadow. Shadow is the absence of light. And so the same thing is true for heat and cold. Cold is a term describing the absence of the thermodynamic activity of heat itself. And so these are all things that then we can come to understand and are accurate metaphors for God. He is the light of the world. He is the source of life. He is the warm fire. In fact, it's often uh, talking about God as a flame when we to understand theosis, that you and I are swords, for example. We're putting our swords into the flame so we can be heated up by God's love. You know, orthodoxy has a whole theology called the river of fire, which is about God's love is a river of fire. And so that's what hellfire is, is that it isn't said that God condemns you to some place because in orthodoxy, we don't have a dialectical dualistic paradigm. Now we live in a dualistic world, but again, this is within a paradigm in which the only things that have positive existence are God's uncreated energies. Apotheosis, again, the idea like Alan Watts, that somehow good and evil are, they, they necessitate each other. That means they both have a positive existence. So within this paradigm, then that's where you see the apotheosis framework become more and more and more prevalent because Makes they don't sense. have this framework mm -hmm. that orthodoxy has where all these negative categories are the absence of the only thing that's true, which is these positive categories. But these are the uncreated energies of God. And so Makes, sense. Makes very sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember when um, uh, when uh, I was reading Carl Jung and his whole spiel was um, this, this meme where Christ and Satan were just like arm wrestling, like implicating that they were like equals of each other. Like right. No brother. Like the one is crushing the head of the other. Right. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. Like one of the things that I was think I was like reading, uh, as you mentioned already, I was reading Athanasius on the incarnation. Yes. Yep. Like I was reading a lot of books about Athanasius, which is like reading a review on a product. You can read a review, but you can also use the product. So I started reading it. <laughs> And, right. Um, I really something very interesting was that um, when you have the the hypostatic union, you have like the logos, the eternal second person of the Trinity, and you have over it is 
uh, the human Jesus that he, that he got from uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Right. So as I see it is that uh, this idea of God to bait the devil and to keep him in the place of um, the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says in Ephesians, to do in his territory. And then we have like the snake that just eating him up. But uh, if, as you know, for the Eastern Orthodox tradition there, the patriarch has like this staff with two mm -hmm. snakes and with a cross in the middle. So like the one snake that is death, but the other snake is the one who eats it up. In John 3, 14, Christ says, as um, Moses has put it off the stand, so, so as the Son of Man shall give eternal life. And, and many more typologies, of course, in the Old Testament. But um, that is, in a nutshell, like the, the brilliance of God, of like how he deceived, the, not, not deceived, put, the, put the, the devil in checkmate. Yeah. How that was his whole plan. And uh, the process of theosis, as we already mentioned in sanctification, we as Orthodox, we do not believe in sola fide. We believe, as, as Paul says in Philippians 2.12, that we should work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Christ right. says in Matthew 10.22 and Matthew 24.11, that until you um, maintain at the very end, thou shalt be saved. He didn't say, oh, as long as you believe, then you are saved. Like, there's that's the whole thing about it, but that my my next question was, if we're going to go to the Bible, how can we, as Peter says in Second Peter one verse four, partake in the divine nature? What's the partake part? Yeah. Um. So the partaking is engaging with these energies, and so. Uh, I, I love, again, that orthodox theology is even consistent with the law of thermodynamics. And so uh, if, if energy is the only thing that's positive and God's uncreated energies, the absence of these energies is death. That's what sin is. So sin is when we engage in activities that displace the uncreated energies in ourselves. And so when you when you engage in sin more and more and more, you're losing the uncreated energies in yourself more and more and more. That is why sin is death. It literally is an energetic process that we can understand within our materialistic framework that is totally consistent with our understanding of orthodoxy itself. And so if you, you know, if you look up Second uh, Peter's 1.4, um, he's talking about uh, what people need to do, you know, to maintain the participating in the divine natures. And so he says, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance to perseverance, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness and a brotherly kindness to love. For if these things are yours and abound in you, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. And so that is the process of repentance then is that we are going to continually engage in sinful activity, no matter how pious, no matter how righteous we are, that's going to displace us from the uncreated energies themselves. They, they can't occupy the same space. It's all energy, but it's the absence of. That's why it is death. And so uh, the, the Orthodox Study Bible has a great section there on deification. It is page 
10, nine, or uh, 1692 for those who mine have Mine is underway. I already ordered mine a month ago, but it still uh, takes a bit of time. But go ahead. Sorry. Dang. So, <laughs> and so this is one of the direct references within Orthodox theology that we uh, talk about theosis because Peter here is giving an explicit reference to the divine nature, to divine essence, to divine substance. And so, as orthodoxy, that's the whole point of the spiritual life is to try to move closer and closer to that. And that's the whole point of the incarnation. That's the whole point of why Christ has to be fully man. And so when we get into these uh, these heresies, whether it's Arianism, where he's just only man, he's not really God, or Doceticism, where he's only fully God and the man thing is really just an illusion, that breaks down the ability for theosis to occur. Both are, both are necessary. Right. And so when you start looking at the world of heresies, you see that really this this theosis, this the Christology, the person of, of Christ is essential because if if this isn't getting right, which is why St. Saint Athanasius is so important, because that's the point on in the incarnation. He's trying to grab the Christology and put that in place so that we can then understand what is the point of everything. What was why did God create the earth? Why did all this stuff exist? Why are we even here? The point always comes back to theosis. Now we can engage, we can approach this from all these different points, um, but that's ultimately the 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 uh, purpose for God's creation. And so there's also references, for example, in in uh, John ten thirty four, where where Christ says, "Answer them: Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods." And uh, this is a reference. If you look in the Orthodox Study Bible again. You are God's people who receive God's grace and faith will partake of his divine nature. Second Peter's one through four and can rightly be called God's I article deification. Christ is effectively saying if those who have received this honor by grace are not guilty of calling themselves gods, how can he who has by this nature deserved to be rebuked? And so even that's then a reference to the Old Testament of Psalm 82 or in the Orthodox Study Bible, Psalm 81, where it talks about uh, becoming gods. And so uh, all you have to do is in your Orthodox Study Bible, look up Psalm 81, and that's what Christ is making reference to, to the Pharisees there. So the, the Scripture itself is even prefiguring God's incarnation, because what is the Scripture? It is the Word becoming physical in a book, in passages, through people, through persons. And so that's so all of this is ultimately leading to the incarnation of God himself, which then is this theosis process. Why I think it gets overlooked is because um, our process of theosis is entirely tied to morality. And this is where you're going to see it very uh, in different ways. Now, you'll see asceticism is very popular, even with the Gnosticism, Gnostic sects, uh, East Asian mysticism. But there's not the same emphasis on morality. Because that is ultimately how we follow Christ. That's ultimately how you pick up your cross and you carry your cross is through the self-denial of the world, which is an ascetic process. But you can't just be some hermit out in the forest. You know, there's a lot more to it. There's a there's a there's um, actions, there's moral structures, dictates that we have to abide by. We have to humble ourselves to follow. And that's what Christ is showing is that he's doing this for the will of God the Father, which, again, our theology of the Trinity is the will is ultimately coming from the soul arche, which is how we understand the Father. 
And then the, as Irenaeus used to say, the logos and the Holy Spirit are two hands of the Father. And so our Godhead then, you know, we can say apophatic things, meaning, you know, negation philosophy, uh, theology, but we can also say cataphatic things because our God also became man. We can literally say that is the case. We can literally say um, positive things as, you know, in, in, in via positiva, via negativa in the Thomistic theology, but we can literally say positive things about our God and also say that our God is outside any type of understanding himself because the Father is always outside any definition. That's why it's a heresy in orthodoxy to ever depict the father in an icon. And so whenever you see Christ sitting next to an old man with a dove, you know, well, that's a heretical icon because the father, can, he, he can only be known through the son. He can only be known through the logos, which means only through logic, only through love, only through honor, only through glory can the father truly be known, which is also the incarnation of all those things in the person of Jesus Christ. So to partake in the deification process within an Eastern Orthodox context, it is a, it's a much more difficult process than I would say a lot of the apotheotic uh, understandings and spiritual practices where, for example, you can uh, attain enlightenment through various types of sexual positions and, and sexual orgies or through drugs or through mystery rites or through esoteric knowledge. And that's where you see a lot of this stuff. And that really ties then to the difference between Satanism and Luciferianism, because Luciferianism at a theological level is about me having the light because Lucifer, Lucius is Latin. It literally means light bringer. So the whole theology of Luciferianism is that I know the truth, but I make sure everybody else is in darkness, where Satanism is just the absolute inversion of everything that Christ teaches or Christianity teaches. So that's, and you see that we're kind of in, in both those right now. We're in a sort of Luciferian satanic world where we can see the world literally becoming inverted, but the people who run it are still in the know of what is right and wrong and what is true. They're just participating on the wrong side of all this stuff because it gives them worldly power. And so the apotheosis is usually tied with these esoteric teachings. And that lure is really getting man to fall into his pride, which is a recapitulation of Satan, Lucifer falling himself and becoming Satan because um, it's about secret knowledge. It's about self-obsession. It's about self-worship, where our theosis is about self-humility, which is really what Christ's incarnation is showing, is that when Christ became man, when God became man, he wasn't a military leader. He wasn't a political leader. He didn't uh, you know, show everybody how powerful he was. He did the exact opposite. And so showing us this is how you actually follow God you, you, in, in Christ as the incarnation of God literally enacts what we're supposed to do and uh yeah so there's more i could say on that feel free yeah. to refer there's yeah there's so much more that could go in different directions yeah perfect man just just so so many beautiful points uh, that you addressed already one thing that um i wanted to go back to you just mentioned before that the absence of god is death and uh, one thing, as, as, as someone who's also been in the gym for quite a while, I'm speaking about you in this particular situation, when you go to the gym and you're just like, uh, like having like this ascetic inner discipline not turned on, and then you're like in consistency mode and there's progress over there, but there's this mo a lapse in time where just like everything just falls apart and it's even harder to get back into it again. And I do believe that it also does apply to sin. Because when mm -hmm. the moment where, um, 
like my that the flesh gets the best of me it's just so much harder to get back to it you can like i do believe that there are levels of holiness that yeah. there is um this energy that you just mentioned before is that when i'm doing everything i promised myself and god to do like praying in the morning reading my bible uh being good to my fellow human beings and etc everything through his lens then I really do feel that not, not only just am I just walking with God, I'm flying with God. Just feels very good. I feel like I'm in sync. Like my mm-hmm. life has never been so um, meaningful. But there's this moment where you're just like, just want to want to put yourself away. There's the shame and um, yep. every, like everything you do, it's under under His providence and under His sight. And there's this humility again that you need to come back to Him, like. Uh, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like you just can't help but just get into your knees. And uh, one of my favorite Bible verses, Matthew twenty three twelve, mm. uh, for uh, those who exalt themselves shall be humbled, and those who humble themselves shall be exalted. And that's right. exactly what he did, and that's exactly the way how to attain the theosis. Right. And the inversion of what the devil was trying to do is. What people don't forget, and I already mentioned this with my stream with uh, Allison of the, uh, Devotional Heart, is that everything in the beginning was already fine. Like the we were already one in, with God in His image and in His likeness. The a theosis was already attained at the moment when the Wait, devil, with the devil, with Adam and Eve. Yeah, the 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 moment in Genesis three. This might be a, a new idea. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. If there's something okay. that you're like. Um, theosis, like the process of glorification, but my belief is not that uh, we should talk about original sin, but about original righteousness. Everything in the beginning was already good at the moment when the devil intervened and used their free will in order to invert theosis, God knowing that it would happen, or else he wouldn't let, right. let it play it out. That, that exactly that's what, what fell down, Christ is building back up again. That because of Eve, of a woman, uh, where death came into being and by Christ and Mary life came back into being like this whole process of reconciling one, one of the things that uh, an awesome rabbi once told me uh, Rabbi Jason Sobel like he's very much into a gematria and he for instance says that the first letter of the Bible is to be from Barashit and the last letter is N from Amen Ben, son that the whole Bible from beginning to end is all about Christ. This, we cannot mention that a lot more. And the, the idea that the whole of creation is a gift from the Father through the Son if he, is humil- if he shows his humility. And I think that's just love in its essence. Yeah, I, I can also rant on these type of subjects. So, Yeah, well, I, from my understanding... Theosis wasn't complete until Christ incarnated. So Adam and Eve, the reason why they couldn't eat from the tree of knowledge is not because the tree of knowledge was bad, is because they were spiritual children. And so you don't feed steak to a child because he'll choke and die. And that's exactly why us eating from the, the tree of knowledge, we're going to choke and die. And that's exactly what we did. Because by being able to see good from evil, we are now split within ourselves. And where before maybe we could only see the positive, we could only see God. We could only see, uh, you know, the righteous things. But once we are able to see good and evil, once we realize we are naked, now, in a, in a way, we're kind of split. And that's where the the restoration of Christ, and we still are split. 
but Christ's the incarnation is the is from my understanding the endpoint of theosis and that's why when he's on the cross he says it is complete that the, the 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 making of man in the image of god ends with christ's death on the cross his destroying the category of death is an addendum to finishing this process but the image of mankind being made in the image of God is complete on the cross. And that's why he says that on the cross, it is complete. It is, it is done. The work is done. And so, and that's the result. He wouldn't have to die on the cross if we didn't fall from the garden, but he would have still had to incarnate. Mm -hmm. And so, and so I, I agree with uh, the rabbi uh, in regards to the entire the entire Bible is about Christ. It, I mean, it literally is the word incarnate to agree, but although we don't understand this, like the Protestant, you know, we worship the word as the logos, this mm. is filtered through fallible human beings. And so, yeah, there's mm. grammar, there's grammar yeah. errors in the Bible. One of the things that Josiah Trenum said for is that Christ didn't come to earth in order to write or to dictate a book. He exactly. came to save us. Exactly. So, so do we, have, do we need to have a high, um, Look towards the Bible. Of course, we do. I mean, we're not saying that we have the Bible on a very lower level, but right. it's, it's a more it's a more about the the message that it conveys. And it, yeah, and it's a more nuanced understanding because we don't worship a book. We worship the second person. We worship the whole Godhead, but we understand the Word is the Logos. And so when when Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's talking to God, that is the Logos. How does God communicate other than through His Word? That is always through Christ. Christ is always the mediator. Every time that somebody mm -hmm. had a theophany, it's Christ. Yeah, John 1, 18, it says, nobody has seen the Father except the Son. But we see in the Old Testament that all these patriarchs of the Old Testament, they have seen God. What does that imply? They've seen Jesus. They've only seen the Son, exactly. And so even how does God, he speaks the world into existence in Genesis, which is still through the Son. It's God's will through the word of God, through the logos that creates creation itself. So we see the same process. It's God's will being enacted through the second person in which we can understand who God is, who the father is. One thing that Christ says, that, of course, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the father except through me. So something that we already discussed with Bo Branson, I was like asking him how, like when we are talking about metaphysics, it, it's, it can be very technical, but if we go into the depths of it, we're really talking about love, about uh, uh, all this type of stuff, all this, I would say, uh, emotions that we can sense God, that we can experience God despite our noetic fallen depraved minds, but we, yep. can, it has, we still have this connection. Like Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that, that God has put eternity in our hearts. There is a spark of div divinity, as Jordan Peterson calls this. And I do, I, I do agree with him on that part. Sure. But, but what do you, would you say on how the, the Trinity functions, the, the functional side of uh, our, our observation from the Trinity's perspective? What are you asking exactly? I'm a little... Like the, the, what is the how does this how does the Trinity uh, inform us the relationship or who God is? Now, how does the Trinity save us? Because uh, mm. the, the thing is that uh, Christ came to die on the on the cross for our sins, but does the Father uh, forgive us? Does the Son forgive us? Does the Holy Spirit forgive us? And how would you explicate that? Okay, so uh, I would say all three 
technically forgive us because they have one will. Um, in regards to the economy of God throughout Scripture, we see that Christ completes the process um, in the crucifixion and then the resurrection, the defeating of death categorically, um, that now that that category no longer exists unless you and I choose it. Right. The people who were in there before didn't choose to be in Hades. They were there because of the category itself of death having to be there because they died. We now engage in eternal damnation through our choices. It's all up to our free will because Synergy. God will never. Yeah. God will never violate your free will because your free will is made in his image out to violate his own image. And so. Christ completed and Christ ascended and Christ is coming back at the end. And until then, we have the spirit here with us. And so now when it, that, and that's what the church is. The church is the sort of body of the Holy Spirit as which Christ was himself. And that's why you and I as Orthodox Christians are the body of Christ. We eat the body of Christ in the Eucharist to be the body of Christ, to commune with the human body sitting on the throne next to the father of Christ mm. that that we that, are that's, what we all, that, that's also one of the reasons I also became an Orthodox. I want to stay as far as I can away from restorationism, meaning God failed, but I know what he's trying to say. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> what? Right. So uh, just to say like, yeah, all the church fathers, they were fallible. Of course they were fallible, but there you need to understand that in God's omniscience and divine providence and his, and his omnipotence, when he says that he will send the spirit of truth to guide the church, was he, what's, in your estimation, what was he trying to say? Like up until the 15th and 16th century, then you will know what I was trying to say. Like, no, sorry, bro. Like, yeah, there's this whole disputation going on between uh, Orthodox and, and Calvinists. But, well, and, and that was due, I would say, due to historical circumstances of changing the paradigm is that, uh, you know, Protestants, coming out of the scholastic tradition that was developed in the West, they are in this paradigm of the dialectical opposites somehow both having positive existence. And so no matter how much you want to sit and think about it, you're never going to get to an Orthodox worldview in that context. And so um, they're almost set up to, to fail. And at the same time, you can understand why the Protestants don't want to be Catholic. Uh, due to the atrocities going on in the Vatican, uh, the selling of indulgences, uh, the deliberate uh, attempt to keep people from reading scripture. Um, and then and then you have the Gutenberg uh, printing press, you know, mid 1400s that are now you can mass produce books. And so now people can read the Bible in German and they know German. And now they can look and say, whoa, this is the Catholic Church. They're, they're doing the opposite of what scripture says. And so in a way, Protestantism empowered the people. It just then empowered the people to leave it to their own interpretation, which then is infinite interpretation, which ultimately leads to subjectivism and relativism, which is ultimately why the Western world is the way it is, that it's all a domino effect of the paradigm that was set forth. And so because of the dialectical thinking, you know, scholasticism leads into philosophy. The philosophy leads into the overprivileging of rationalism itself which is the elevation of man to a sort of deific status, although in, in the name of rejecting, athe you know, atheism, rejecting God and all this different stuff. But, you know, just read Rousseau, read Comte, read um, Nietzsche, read the way that the greatest minds of the Western philosophical system gets going is that 
they're they're building off this system that ultimately destroys metaphysics. They they want to undercut metaphysics, and so therefore there are no objective categories which aren't directly observable. Which is funny because at the same time they believe in mathematics. They believe on and and, and I don't want to disparage. You know, these are great thinkers, and some of their thoughts are way more sophisticated than this. But uh, you know, you can only look. You can look to Nietzsche. I mean, he directly undermines the process, the tradition of metaphysics itself, and in so doing, which was already being happening within philosophy well before Nietzsche, that as soon as you get to the destruction of metaphysics, all you have is the physical world. And if the physical world is always changing due to Darwinian evolutionary theory, therefore truth is always changing. Therefore, of course, it's going to come back to a relativistic subjective world of which man dictates what's right and wrong, and it's going to be enforced by the state because there is nothing transcendent, because there is no metaphysics, and therefore there is no God. Just one, one big cocktail of uh, destruction. Yeah, um, which, is, which is, yeah, and you can't help but see that sort of domino effect and why then the West is the big evil in the world right now. That at the, at the same time, it, it produces all this wealth. It produces all the opportunity. It, you know, all these different thinkers throughout philosophy. And, you know, I think philosophy is very useful in regards to developing categories of thought. But um, now the Western world is the biggest evil. I mean, you know, the transgenderism, the pedophilia, the, the homosexuality, the just the outright inversion of reality is we can see that in a way, Satan, the evil one, he subverts God's vehicles, right? And so Christianity was God's vehicle. And so we look at the post-schism world and we see that this domino effect has essentially led to the materialization of a satanic reality. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 there were so many points that you addressed, just like historically speaking, just makes so much sense all the way throughout the millennia how we got where we are right now mm. and my the thing about orthodoxy is that it does not let those scholars say to us christians how we need to interpret the bible like in orthodoxy there is this this there's this episcopacy there is this hierarchy of patriarchs and one thing that is also very good i think a lot of outsiders will say otherwise but there's this huge sense of community when you're coming to an orthodox parish like for the first few times you're an outsider because it's very close with each other you are not this loose hand on the ground you are part of a body in a protestant right. it was like when at the whim of your heart like i'm going to start a new church i want to have like those who god has chosen in order to shepherd the church i want to listen to them that's why i'm reading yeah the church fathers like just mm -hmm. to say like yeah those guys didn't know what they're doing like dude they were prosecuted. They were breathing and eating the Bible like you could not imagine, for instance. Have some respect. Know that they are not any more any more smarter or dumber as you are. Because the thing is that people in this day and age, they think like, oh, we are the, the epitome of, of what is um, sophisticated right now. Bro, right. there is no evidence for the past thousands of years that cognitively speaking, humans were dumber or smarter. So just have some respect for those people. My yeah, well, that's the, that's the sense of progress, which is related to post-schism, right? Because the papacy wasn't historical. Uh, you know, referring to somebody as pope as an honorific term, that, that is historical, but not the infallibility of the seat of Peter and all this different stuff. So we see post-schism, we see the concept of 
progressive revelation or pro the concept of progress itself, that somehow truth doesn't say static, which that's what modern progressivism is. It's the same spirit. It's the same idea of that, which leads to people then having over uh, indulged in pride to think that somehow they're way more sophisticated than those in the past, which is a sense of ultimate pride, which is a sense of being possessed by the evil one to some minor degree or major degree, depending on who you are. But again, that's this whole spirit becoming incarnate through the Western world. And so the, the spirit of progress is certainly one of them. One of my, let's go to the, to the last question. Sure, sure. Um, I'm going to quote this one. Uh, Theosis is a Hellenistic or pagan uh, and is borrowed from Plato and Aristotle. How would you respond to this type of accusations? Like that this is from mm -hmm. Hinduism, pantheism, is one of those Trinity words that's not in the Bible. What, how would you respond? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, again, anybody who's, who wants to say a word's not in the Bible, the Bible's not in the Bible. And so that, that, is, that is one of the sola scriptura, and it often comes from Protestants. And so sola scriptura is not in the Bible. So sola fide. Yeah, when, when you're using the word concept, fellas, you're automatically telling me like, uh, I cannot compute. Please come down to my level. Like, no, bro. I need to be a little bit more sophisticated than that. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Um, in regards to um, theosis, the claim that it might be related to Greco-Hellenistic practices, um, that would be that's part of also the genetic fallacy is that if anything comes from anywhere, then it's automatically wrong. Orthodoxy, due to St. Justin Martyr, has a concept called logos spermaticos. And so logos, seeds of truth, can be present everywhere. It can be present in pagan traditions, in tribal societies, maybe truths within Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. But the full revelation of truth is the logos, which is orthodox theology. Because the problem with perennialism, and somebody may hear this idea and think, oh, so what he's saying is that all religions are true. No, because I'm using one epistemological framework. Epistemology is just a fancy term for the study of knowledge and truth itself. So what epistemology framework for how do you know something to, how do you know that you know anything? The, the rules of a chess game. Yeah. So, yeah. So the epistemology that we're using is singular. If we say all religions lead to the same truth, what epistemology are you using to say that all the religions have different epistemologies? None of them are equal. And so what one are you using to say that they're all equal? You're just grabbing something out of thin air and you're not really, it's not, it can't be true. It, by definition, it's internally contradictory. So we as Orthodox Christians say, no, we believe in Logos Spermaticos, that as Justin Marta, he may go further than some of the church fathers, but he went and said, you know, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, well, these were sort of Christians before Christ because they were led by Logos and reason. Now, they got a lot of things wrong, but they were, lead, they were trying to understand Logos. And so uh, this is then seeds of truth. Now, they are wrong in a lot of different ways. The big thing that we're got, we're not Platonists. People want to accuse. Uh, I've heard this from Catholic scholars. They want to say, well, the Eastern Orthodox theology, it, it's all platonic. And I'm not sure where they get this stuff from. Uh, but the main accusation when you call something platonic is often related to potentially emanationism or the understanding the dialectical tension between the materiality and the ethereal or the non-physical. So for Plato, the non-physical, the realm of the form, the realm of the ideals, the, the idealism, right? That which you can't touch. This is the pure. 
This is, this is uh, the more truer. And that when you see something that is material, it's lesser than. And so we then are on the fringes of creation. We're way out on the outside. That's why we're all physical. Because if we were truly elevated, if we're truly spiritual, if we're truly enlightened, we wouldn't have bodies. And that's where you see that concept get going in Gnosticism. That's why they're into not having children. Because that, from this platonic presupposition, they interpret the Old Testament as the devil and that therefore creation is bad and their cre creation has to be destroyed because creation traps the light of God within matter. And that's why they were into, you know, sodomy and uh, heteros or homosexuality, some, you know, uh, the Borberites, for example. Um, but uh, different, um, different practices to not have children because they saw this as a sin. Now, that is a platonic idea of the relationship between matter and non-matter. So typically within a platonic framework, if you want to talk about theosis, and this is where the new age gets it, right? Because the new age has a sort of platonic framework where they'll say, okay, well, you take drugs or you take, you do your yoga or you do your meditation. You realize that you are God. And then you realize that me as David Patrick Carey, this is an illusion. This is, this is a falsity. This is, this is totally out here, right? It's out in the material world. The truth is that I'm actually pure consciousness. The truth is that I'm divine spirit or I'm divine consciousness or Christ consciousness, as they like to say. So that, that is a platonic framework because it's associating divinity with non-materiality and materiality with lesser forms of divinity. Now, sometimes, again, they'll be panentheistic and they may be they may say that's equal. OK, that's another another choice. But we as Orthodox are explicit that Christ, God, became man, which means he became physical, which means he sanctifies all of creation. And so when we're saved, we're saved with our bodies. We don't die. We have spiritual bodies. Yes, but it has a materiality. In it, and that's demonstrated when Christ appears at the apostles in the upper room and he eats fish. He actually eats food. Now he's already dead. He's already been dead for three days. He's already defeated death. And now he's 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 resurrected, he's getting ready to ascend. And yet he's still eating physical food. And at the same time, he's coming through a closed door to enter into the upper room. So he's like. He's like super real. He's so real that the doors can't keep him out of it. Yet at the same time, when he eats food, it stays inside his stomach. And so this is showing that the physicality of our spiritual bodies and, and how then Christianity is, again, taking both this, this category, this struggle between the physical and the non-physical. Christianity is like bringing them both together. It's not an either or dialectic. There, right. If therefore one, it cannot be one. Who says who? Right. And that's why then our theosis, it can't be described as Hellenistic because no Hellenistic philosophy has that same understanding. Right, no right. Hellenistic philosophy mm. has the logos as uncreated. No Hellenistic philosophy has the logos as fully incarnated. And no Hellenistic philosophy then has a unification of these two things together as part of the sort of spiritual reality. Therefore, it can't be Hellenistic. It has Hellenistic attributes, sure, when we use Greek words like the noose, but we don't mean the same thing as noose as Plato did. Mm. It, it has a different definition. And so that's one of the difficulties by people who want to quote mine orthodoxy is they see these Greek mm -hmm. words and yeah. then they want or, or to put a Roman word. definition to it. Or just like J, J, Dyer, J. Dyer said, for instance, is it about logos of the prologue of John or logos of Marcus Aurelius? Like there's right. a distinction between those two. Like 
if, if the one fallacy I'm just like getting so tired of is the phonetic fallacy or the word concept fallacy. Yep. Like you're just screaming like uh, I cannot comprehend. I'm like, that's no problem. Be humble, study. There's a lot of stuff that even the best of of, of all the, the scholars or or patristic fathers do not understand. That's not the whole point. Right. It's, but prelist is it's it's an orthodox term, out of words for for pride, of course. Mm-hmm. That you need to fit it into your own box and, and say how God can or cannot be. Just let God be God. It, and and and. Yeah, bow your knee before it's too late. Because if you're not bowing your knee towards Christ and proclaim with your tongue that he is Lord, he's going to break your knee. I'm almost saying that, that, that particular assertive language. But Yeah, I think people need to be humble enough to first see what orthodoxy is teaching. You know, uh, and that's where even some of the recent converts is, um, I think because of the online apologetic sphere and its activity and bringing a lot of people in, that there's also a sense of pride once one becomes orthodox to try to beat other people. Like if orthodoxy is a baton because it's true, they want to beat people online with it. Yeah. And, 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 and it becomes an identity. It's like, well, well, you're not Jay Dyer, you know, so stop. Like you, you haven't read enough. You, you don't know the scripture. You don't know the theology. Hum, be humble enough to learn it first. And so, um, and that's also true with the people who want to then quote mine or disparage orthodoxy and take it totally decontextualized is it takes time. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of study and a lot of will to submit yourself to the teaching and just understand that first and then move from there. If you want to, you know, you can always share your faith with people. You can always try to help people or, you know, but I, you know, too many people want to be Jay Dyer in orthodoxy, especially online, especially on Twitter, especially on some of these social yeah, media yeah. platforms. And it actually hurts online orthodoxy because it, ma- it makes everybody look like that somehow they just want to be right all the time. It makes it look incredibly prideful. No, no. But the, the whole thing about my YouTube channel is I was very much afraid in order to put it in a such a way like, okay, everybody come sit down. I'm going to show you how it's done. And that's not my whole goal. My, my whole thing is, is I'm a dummy. I'm, I'm kind of human if I, uh, as far as I'm concerned, but I'm trying to invite people who are just like way up there. They are the masters of their territory as a figure of speech. Mm-hmm. And I have like these questions, the particular themes. And the goal is that within the couple of years, for instance, there's this progress, this edu- educational Absolutely. progress that you can see how I'm learning. So inst- as well as you guys learning something, as well as I'm learning, of course, I will do some uh, teaching stuff. I want to do refutations. I want to do book reviews. Uh, on the, uh, the beginning of January, for instance, at a, a devotional hearts channel, I will do a presentation on the Trinity, like the biblical oh, right. basis for it. So it's one of those rank one doctrines that I, yeah, I wish every Christian uh, could uh, could dream that one. Right. I love that one. And just let, recently, I got this one in Systematic Theology: God as Trinity from Norman R. Gully. Like it's oh, a very, it's a very Norman R. Gully. So it's uh. You want to write the one down? Yeah. I got a bunch more. But anyway. Nice. Yeah, so I just it's it's one of those things that you need to love it. Like yeah. and it's a process. That's that's where yeah. I get so skeptical of anybody who has these evangelical born again. Now I, it's totally fine if you know mm. you have you come to the realization like at a sudden moment, okay, orthodoxy, totally get it. But 
the sudden realization and all of a sudden now you're debating people. And I, I, I didn't mean, you know, some of the, the people, the nice people, you know, we have great people on our ortho community that are creating video content. I just noticed, especially on Twitter, I think the ortho Twitter sphere is really toxic. And, um, and, and the, the, and the, I see these weird things too, with online Orthodox regarding like sex. So like, so I saw one person say something on Twitter about how it's all, it's wrong for you to even see your wife naked. It's like, what? Right. Like, again, this, this is This gets back to these Gnostic ideals about somehow the physicality is bad and that yeah. no, you know, sex in an Orthodox context, sex isn't bad once it's in the right context of marriage. And so, um, this is, you know, it's just orthodoxy. You need to, it's a process. You need to slow into it. You know, just because Jay can do what he does, Father Deacon and Whitcoff and even, you know, myself, but myself, it took me a whole decade of scholastic research in academia to build all the philosophical categories and the background knowledge. So when I encountered orthodoxy, yeah, I could zoom through it a little bit quicker than other people, but that it was still based on a lot, a lot, a lot of reading and effort and work. And so it's like, just like your spiritual life, if you want to talk about all this stuff, you got to put the work in, you got to read the books, you got to do the work. And um, I think if more people did that, we would better, we would build orthodoxy would spread even further because when they encounter, especially the young men, you know, make sure, like you said, go to the gym, go get fit, go take care of yourself, be somebody that when you encounter people in the world, they're like, Hmm, that guy's interesting. I wonder what he's, what, what's, what's going on with him? You know, what's he think? Why does he do this? Oh, he goes to church every Sunday. We're, you know, now you actually embody the theology. You do all these things and that's going to really bring people to you, not, you know, trying to bash people online all the day, all time. It, it, it's so insignificant. Yeah, and it, but, but brother, it is the 21st century internet time age, man. That's so, true. so like, so like the absolute sewage of society, it's just like a wipe away or a click away from, from your You're attention. Right. So, so it, it's, it, it will always be a part of it. Like there's this app called clubhouse is like this discord kind of place. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not on there. I know of it though. Created yeah. by Weinstein. Yeah. Yeah. Oh uh, boy. So for the past, I don't know what is it, more than a half year or something, we uh, there's this. We are in this group of of Holland and Belgium, and we're like a Christian wannabe apologists. Like we just love our faith, and we'd like to discuss it in uh, on those platforms. And there's there are some people who are sincerely asking questions. They really want to know. They aren't Christians, but they, despite the fact that they are, I don't know what they are, agnostic, atheist, I don't know, but they do sense the logic of it. There's mm -hmm. the physics and there's the metaphysics. They they know right. what's what's happening here of all the discussions, but then there's this guy and he just like says like, I, okay, that's it. I'm becoming Christian. I was like, oh wait, great. So uh, never been a Christian. Yeah, of course you went to elementary school and they, they were singing a couple of Christmas songs, but that was it. And <laughs> like within a month later, a month later, I see in his bio, Arian, uh. son of God, but not God. It's like, dude. You just <laughs> you you know what I mean? Yeah, I see it all the time, especially the people that are online. Like, well, I, I'm I'm Catholic, but but not, you know, not this week I'm Orthodox and I'm Orthodox, and then like a month later they're Catholic, and now they're set of a contest because they're Catholic, but they they know Pope Francis. And it's like, dude, like you need to just learn. You need to like get off the internet talking about your spirituality, and really, it comes from I think people looking for a sense of identity. And that's due to the world that we live in right now is that unfortunately uh, 
there are so many people and there are so many voices in the world. People want to stand out. They want some type of uniqueness regarding themselves. And so, well, if I'm Orthodox, if I'm X, Y, Z, they want to attach all these things to be, be their sort of worldly identity. And, uh, you get your identity through getting closer to God and, and doing work, like becoming skilled, doing different things. What what did Jesus say on the, on the mountain, the sermon on the mountain, Matthew six, do not pray as the pagans do and just in their synagogues and showing everybody you're doing it. Just do it in your room. As long as that, as that foundation is there, then hardly anything can go wrong. Of course, we are, as we are talking right now, I'm just speaking to myself about myself. I'm a hypocrite while I'm saying this. Oh, there's absolutely. So, there's so much that's, that still need to be, still need to be learned. And amen. Uh, m- well, life- and, and to do, right? I mean, because we sin all the time, we struggle with, you know, all of us are struggling with different things. And so I know I'm a hypocrite. The difference is I'm willing to admit that. And I'm trying to re- be repentful and, and, and work in the right direction and submit myself. Um, and so the unrepentful hypocrite's really the worst, right? The, 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 repent, the, the hypocrite who sees himself as overly pious, that's the worst because we're all hypocrites to some degree. Yeah. May the Lord help us not to become that prideful. Yeah. Or, or, the, or the, the parable of Luke 18, 9 to 14. And this goes uh, along with the verse of Matthew 23, 12. Which says like there's this parable of the Pharisee. The Pharisee is like, yeah, I'm keeping to the law and uh, everything about me is good. And there's the tax collector, and he's just like, God, I'm not doing anything well, but God, uh, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's where the the Jesus prayer came from. And mm-hmm. then the parable ends with those who exalt themselves shall be humbled, and those who humble themselves shall be uh, exalted. And Christ says particularly. I will say that the last man, he will see the kingdom of heaven. Or I'm paraphrasing, but it's along those lines. So it's 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 a huge understatement when we say in Orthodox, but also in Christianity, that humility is so important. And yes, we, we cannot we cannot be hypocrites, but it's it it is the struggle almost. It is the, the, the yeah. struggle. Well, we're we're always going to be in some degree to be Christians is to be a, a little a little Christ, right? A follower mm-hmm. of Christ. So we're definitely going to sin, even though we try not to. But um, I think one of the streams that I want to do maybe in two days from now is talking about the nativity, the incarnation of Christ and what it means to be human. Um, because I think this is and shout out to Father Athanasius, uh, one of my priests, we were talking about this, this uh, amongst ourselves, and he mentioned it in his homily this past Sunday. But when you take a different perspective and look at the life of Christ. He's showing you as the incarnation is what does it mean to be human? Well, it means that you're going to be subjected, subjected to the will of the state. It means that you're going to die a physical death. It means that you're going to be mocked by other people. This is all actually what it means to be human, to love somebody else. That's all. So when you start to look at even the the nativity that, you know, they don't have enough room in the end for Mary and Joseph. And so they're out in the manger. This is really a reflection of what it means to be human. And then Christ taking on this humanity is showing us that to be human is to be humble. And that it's through this humility by our lowering of ourselves that we actually become closer to God. And so we see then the elevation or the pride that people want to have 
This is a separating yourself from God and because essentially it's you thinking you are God. That is the technocratic pedophile elite that is actually <laughs> controlling the world right now because they do think them to themselves that they are God to some degree because of the lack of humility, because really they're, they're losing their humanity. Therefore, they're losing their image of God within themselves. And that's why it's so easy for them to do the heinous things that they do because they're losing their humanity. Christ shows us how to be fully human. And that's what the incarnation is. And I think that's a really interesting way to then start looking at the life of Christ, his struggles, his, the blessings, the positive things, the negative things is that he's showing you, this is what a human life is. This is what it means to be human. And this is how we respond to it. Yeah, I can't wait for that session. And uh, you, you got already some, a lot of food for thought for that one. So uh, God bless you. But uh, oh, appreciate it. Wonderful, wonderful subjects man so i'm going to wrap it up mm -hmm. we got a lot of meat spiritual meat so can I, what can i say thank you very much you, you are a blessing to the orthodox church for church in in, in, in the general sense um, yeah i got a question are you going to be uh uh trying to get more armenians to become uh eastern orthodox is, is this you a have no idea like oh boy like, I'm a hypocrite while I'm saying this already, but uh, Armenia in, in, in its historicity uh, has so much significance. But Armenians yes. are very quick to say, like, yeah, Armenia was the first Christian nation. But yeah. yet then again, they don't know, don't, they know not much about it. Me, right. and me as well. So I do have, like, this extra anger, hopefully righteous anger towards Armenians who are using their Christianity in a nominal sense. Right. Like when they're, when they are, yeah, when they cannot defend the, their Bible or, yeah, there, there is, there is this urge when I'm trying to edify my uh, Armenian people, but a lot of people in Armenia, in Holland are Armenian and they are picking it up uh, on a big time because there was this influence of communism, of course. Yeah. And uh, our the generation, generation before us, our parents and before them, they, did have a good time under communist rule because then it was like at the very end of 70s and 80s, but they right. didn't know much about the Bolsheviks, for instance. Right. So the analogy that I have is like uh, uh, the, the trees are cut, but the new seeds are also planted. And as Christ says in Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few and we need more workers. And we right. need to get this one going because we are sitting on an historical gold mine, if you ask me. And uh, so much to be explored. I'm trying to buy a couple of Armenian books because I'm reading Athanasius, Cappadocian Fathers, John of Damascus. They're all over the place. And right there is Armenian. Why am I why am not reading that? That's the question I have to myself. So it's uh, a territory to be explored yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, my girlfriend is Armenian. And so she's really informed me a lot. And it's it's really sad to see uh with the stuff going on with azerbaijan with uh the influence of turkey um and then because it, it, and this was my point of view again learning more about this through her is the lack of a true spiritual foundation in armenia is why it just like armenia is just going to continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just yerevan basically yeah well, I, I, I've done a, a podcast with Dr. Jake Persley. He's an American uh, from Milwaukee, if I recall correctly. He's a missionary. And he has spent 14 years in Turkey, like trying to build up the church there. And one thing he said in our podcast was that for the past 50 years, Armenia has committed a genocide against itself, quote, abortion. 
Yeah. And there's the spirit of paganism. There are our mean source saying, yeah, I want to go. What, what Jesus, what Christ? I'm going back to Anahit and, and there's type of right. pagan. Well, they have Mithraic temples there in Armenia. Yeah. Old, old, old pagan temples. Yeah. So spiritually speaking, there's a lot to do, a lot of work to do. And the, the symbology of uh, the decline of Christianity in Armenia, it just hurts me. Because oh. I, see, I see Armenia as a figure of a joke, for instance. They are... Their heart is at the right place, but God has has this this thing with Armenia. Like historically speaking, I'm like, I have like this 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 questioning of like God. If there's evil in the world, why is this happening to Armenians? Like the past year, there was this war as you mentioned. Yep. Four, four of my family died, but there are also families who lost 18 of their boys. Or they I'm were sorry f- to hear that. Yeah. So that was a moment where. Uh, I was crying out to God and I was like wondering where the Christianity was in Europe, where the Christianity was in America, because those are our Christian nations, right? They will help us, right? That was the moment when we realized that we were all alone. Like yeah. at, at, at the whim of their will, of the devil, Armenia can be wiped out in an instant and the yes. world won't do anything about it. And that's why I cried out to this. I saw my answer in this and that's why I'm doing apologetics. This anger kind of energy that's inside of me. And I'm just like attacking these books, like devouring everything I can in order to edify myself and edify those around me. And by his grace, that he will call me, uh, well done, my uh, beloved servants. Yeah. Right. Well, that, I mean, I'm sure that's the spirit working in you to try to, that transformation, that transfiguration process, right? You're taking somebody like anger. And you're, you know, hopefully God through you is turning that into fruit. I hope it's righteous. I hope it's righteous anger. Yeah. Well, I, again, just learning all this stuff, I hope Armenia survives. And it's sad to see a lot of the Orthodox countries uh, be very apologetic towards Azerbaijan and a lot of the, and and, and Turkey more so than the plight of Armenia and all this stuff. And, um, and then to see the state of, Armenian and I'm not Armenian, so I'm not trying to mm-hmm. criticize in any vulgar way. But you know, like you said, it's like they don't have an interest because they're so old of a people. Like Ar- Armenia is very, very old culture, and people don't realize how old of a people they are. You know, and so for them to be potentially their country, their homeland, be annihilated, and they're just going to live in diaspora, you know, over in L.A., you know, in these Hollywood Armenians. Like that's you're going to lose everything that is so precious in the, in the churches and the history. And, you know, that's why Deanna and I, we always talk about it'd be if they could just become Eastern Orthodox, you know, not that it would happen, but if Armenia was Eastern Orthodox, at least they would have the true faith because it's almost like it, because the lack of the true church being there, that it's just a cultural thing. Yeah. You know, we watched the documentary and even the Armenian priest, you know, uh, Armenian, Armenian Orthodoxy is way more Catholic than it is Eastern Orthodoxy. There are even Armenians who are Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I'm just I'm just saying I'm just yeah, throwing it out there. But th- thank you for doing the research. Of course, you have uh, uh, your other half who's helping you with the, the study. So what is it particularly about Armenia that just is makes Armenia Armenia? 
Well, I think the the historicity of them as a people, I mean, obviously, uh, anybody who's familiar with the uh, Mount Ararat and uh, and that whole thing, you know, in the in the Armenian kingdoms, you look at historically speaking, way, way bigger than the current state, uh, you know, the country of Armenia, the current country of Armenia is a shadow of the Armenian kingdoms uh, before Christianity, after Christianity. And so it's sad to see such an old culture, such an old group of people, just as history goes on, it just continues to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and I, I don't know, I, again, I, I'm on the outside looking in, but there isn't, um, there isn't the same or what I would again, and I'm coming, I'm biased because I'm coming at it as an Eastern Orthodox. It's like, it's so heavily cultural. It's not, there is like no theological dimension to the contemporary landscape. Like it's just, and that could be the results of the Soviet Union, you know, being under the Soviet bloc. And I've obviously seen the boomer Armenians almost uh, reflective and idealistic about the, the Armenian, you know, the Soviet Union. And it's like, whoa, 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 well, don't you understand? Again, you're missing the theology here because that's why you know, Soviet Union was squashing out. That's why all of the Eastern Orthodox, you know, that's why we have Orthodoxy in America is because of the Bolshevik revolution, you know? And so it's like the Soviet Union squashed the thing that can save you guys. And, yeah. and, and, and the lack of any deeper understanding of the theology, you know, very few Armenians even know the difference between Eastern Orthodoxy and Armenian Orthodoxy, you know, who is Nestorius? What is the fifth council? Uh, yeah. Nobody knows that. And, and it's like, oh, uh, you, you, on the outside, cause I, I'm American. I'm a, I'm a European mud. I have, you know, mostly German blood, but mm. I don't have that ancestral root like, uh, like an Armenians do. And it's like, you want to mm. preserve that. You don't want to see it continue. You don't want to see Azerbaijan continually just gain more and more and more Terry. And like, I'm afraid Armenia is going to be eventually become Muslim. Because the, the Islamic faith is so much stronger than the Armenian Christian faith. The, the biggest aversion I have is Islam. That's why I'm trying to specialize in, in, in the most gracious manner. I want to understand it. I want to do it in a loving way. Uh, the channel is not meant for that particular subject. It's more about explicating uh, Christianity as good as I can. But implicitly, in a very deep level, I'm trying to... I have like the Sam Shimon kind of anger <laughs> to that type, this type of stuff. I want to channel that one because it is, as, as you mentioned before, it is the threat. It is the, the demonic spiritual threat, not the persons. Right. But, um, and then they're going to destroy the, the history. They're going to destroy the churches. They're going to destroy you, the legacy of St. Gregory. They're, you know, like everything that makes Armenia, Armenia is going to be gone as soon as it becomes Muslim. I know. I know. I, I do think a lot about it of all those amazing churches of the, the Echmiatzin church. So like there's the yep. Horvid up where uh, Gregory the Illuminated went there. I went there yep. two, two, three years ago with my grandfather. I've had that episode on my YouTube channel. And then I sensed the, the, the historical significance, but my grandfather who was also named Vartan. He, he, he is such in a Christian in such a way. He, there is no doubt in his mind. He's already talking like, are you not believing this really? Like there's this level that just waiting for me to get up there. And now I'm almost up there where, where he is. And uh, the, the thought alone that there are um, 
human beings who are enticed in such a way they just want to see the destroy just for the destruction of it. Yeah. It just it just it just it's one of the things I wrestle with with a lot where that the church of Gregory Lusavarich, the illuminator, um, there's this church called the Etchmiatsin. And mm-hmm. by tradition, I'm going to going off by tradition. The thing is that Gregory Illuminated had a vision of Christ, the only begotten son, coming down with the hammer, striking the ground. And at that place where Christ has struck the ground, there, there was the, the Echmiachin Cathedral made the first quote church of Christianity. And I'm like watching to my other Armenians like, do you guys know this? And they're walking past by it, making pictures. And I'm like, whoa, man. That, yeah, it just... exactly. Yeah, it, it it captures my my attention a lot. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the the whole legacy of Saint Gregory and then healing the king and and that's how mm-hmm. Armenia became became Christian. There's just so much rich rich history there that um, I I'm rooting for. You know, I know that they won the you know the Eurovision uh, thing was a big deal for Armenians. Um, um, but. Uh, you know, just being be even being in a relationship with an Armenian girl has come uh, with a, quite a bit of challenges being a Westerner. Um, mm. So uh, in, in, in what sense, if you want to explain that one? Well, it's a very uh, sort of isolated culture uh, and it's very internal, uh, internally cohesive. Right. Uh, so Westerners, uh, you know, there's not as a, as an importance of. A particular ethnic identity where for Armenian and at least Armenian parents um, maintaining that, especially in the face of what's going on right now, uh, I see, I think there's a bit of a, uh, a uh, premium on it. And so, um, it, you know, I, I feel for Armenia, I hope that they are able to preserve themselves um, uh, you know, that's why I that's why I asked you about because I feel like orthodoxy. If people are believing in Jesus Christ authentically and they're taking the Eucharist and they're part of the body of church and maybe that begins to spread. And that is, you know, and I know Georgia has its own problems, you know, your your neighbors to the north. Um, but, it, you know, it, and then you have Russia and it seems like Russia is always playing Armenia off and, and, and almost gaslighting them and and then uh, always just kind of go, you know, partnering with the Turks over and over. Um, that the, the Armenia, the only people that are going to save Armenia is Armenians. And that the only way that Armenians are going to save it, I think, is with Christ. That's I wanted to finish off with that uh, last sentence because, you know, we, we are all the sheep of his pastures, so there is no concern in my heart and in my mind if it comes to everybody's everybody's so so yes it is correct that there is this internal cohesiveness um i really do wish you and uh what any type of endeavor you have or you guys have with each other i wish you very much very well the best uh you have my blessing i don't even know who she is but i because i do i do sense that uh uh that people come are coming to me to ask my permission Versus, of course, I have like the the inclination to marry with an Armenian woman. I'm still single right now. Got a woman. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, they're yeah. The, the the parents especially they 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 have seen what has happened, and there is this 
unfortunately, there there this dynamic that when you are not marrying with an Armenian person, you are committing treason. And yeah. it's just it's such a yeah. I, I'm not judging anyone, any Armenian, because it's not about our. Never does it say in the Bible that thou shalt marry with a dino nation. So it's not. So yeah, there are there will be Armenians who think uh, another way, but. Thank well, you for mentioning. Why, yeah, well, and that's why in orthodoxy, you know, we, we privilege the faith over nationality. And that's why we have national churches. But orth, orthodoxy is replete with marrying, you know, other ethnicities, other nationality. But it has to always be under the orthodox church. And um, and, and and yeah, so you're you're I could understand also why, you know, wanting to perpetuate you know, Armenia, you know, make Armenian babies, uh, is going to be incredibly important. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, it's so funny because the, the parents who had seen the destruction of Armenia, let's say just in the last 50 years, um, they, they don't at the same time know the history that well, they also, they don't know the theology that well, they don't. It, so it's like this weird on the outside looking in, it's like, how is it that I'm not that, but I feel like I know more about it. I know yeah, more about yeah, the, the, yeah, the whole yeah, history. Yeah, yeah. I know more about the whole thing. And it's like, well, I don't understand. Like, if you love it so much, why aren't you doing X, Y, Z? I don't, I don't understand. Great point. No, that's very well put, actually. And I really do think that you've put, yeah, the, the, the finger on the sore place and which actually just, justly so you're doing it. A hundred percent, man. A hundred percent. But coming to, coming to that point, uh, if it comes to me, there is no excuse anymore. <laughs> there is no excuse. Um, everything I need, I already have within within hand reach, and everything I need to know, there is a way to know him. And God has blessed us with the health, with the cognitive abilities, um, with everything we have today, right now. So it is about doing what we can, and. Yep. Um, yeah, Armenians have my number one priority. Now, correct me if I'm right. Christians have my number one priority. Because when I hear a Christian, when they are a Christian, but they can't even explain like the basic soteriology, trinity, or this type of right, stuff. Right. Or, or when a Muslim comes and says, yeah, the Bible's been corrupted. Oh, really? Like, <laughs> you have to understand that orthodoxy, like orthodoxy in the most general sense, there are so many restorationist movements, Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses, Islam, they're all trying to nudge away from orthodoxy. And we right. here are just like sucking our own thumbs, like not knowing what's happening, of course, also in Armenia. And what I'm trying to do is in a, in a brotherly loving way, is going to slap on the back of the head of all those people like, wake up. Do you understand what's happening right now? Right. And, and, and they're, they're fortunate there are uh, folks contacting me. And they're like, thank you for doing this. Uh, thanks to you. I'm doing research. I'm like, whoa. Yeah, th those are the things that uh, it's it's not we everything that is good is from God and everything wrong is that's from us, right? The end. Well, the end. well, I it was my girlfriend that even found your channel when you did uh, when you interviewed Jay Dyer because she saw your name and immediately knew you're Armenian, ah. and and so because uh, <laughs> um, she has done a lot of deep diving and so she knows her theology very well and that's why she's okay. eastern orthodox and that's why that's the most important thing to her is orthodoxy um and so to see you know i that's why i hope 
again, I, we all have target market. Yeah. I care about all the Christians, but my target market, I'm trying to, I think of this ministry, you have your own ministry. These ministries are building bridges into orthodoxy of which is only the first time in history because of the internet. So God uses that negative for positive, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the technological, you know, global reset that we're going under is also giving us the ability to spread orthodoxy for the first time in world history. And so I'm building bridges. My bridges are for psychedelic, occult, spiritual, not religious, Eastern mystical people. So that's so my content, I'm always thinking, okay, it's for everybody. I want everybody to, to find my content useful, but I have a target market because I feel like that's my mission. That's my, that's where I came from. And so that's how I build bridges from where I am, from where I was to where I am. Yeah, and that's the same for you. Yeah, 100%. Because the, 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 the chapters of your life beforehand, like you, in another sense, you are feeling sorry for yourself, but in another sense, God has used that for his good. Because as you, once you started diving into Orthodox, you already had like done this whole spiritual digestion, digestion part. A lot of mm-hmm. things start to click as well. Like I do have like this, uh, I don't know if you have the same uh, the thing as well. We have like this quote, imposter syndrome, that there's this voice in there who's saying like, who do you think you are? You didn't go to... Uh, uh, a parish study uh, Christianity from from when I was five years old. You just came into the scene, boy. <laughs> like there is this voice inside your head that's trying to put you down, making you humble. At another hand, but also the mission is more important than my own feelings about myself. So the, I also am trying to specialize in those things, and and God has used you for for His glory and nothing but nothing but power to it. Because there are a lot of people who have, who have or have the the the. The, the domain that you were in and you right. know you understand them like, the, like allison for instance of a devotional heart you asked like 80 people in her telegram channel mainly women who came from new age so we right. do need to we do need to have general understanding of her faith but it's also good to become a specialist and right. the answer to that is to follow follow the holy spirit not follow your heart but follow the holy spirit you got your faith right. no amen that's where i see my specialty and that's what's so great about this or- online orthodox community is Dyer, he has his specialties, Protestant, Catholicism, you know, and he's really growing uh, really strong in Islam, uh, talking mm-hmm. about absolute divine simplicity, philosophy, and then the larger conspir- conspiratorial globalist framework. So that's his special. I see mine as bridging it also off the philosophy, um, but really into the new age, the spiritual, not religious, occultism, psychedelics, and really Gnosticism, because I, I feel like that's my, you know, I have... I really have all the research books for Gnosticism and know a lot about Gnosticism that that is, and that's really going to be in 2022. I'm going to bring a lot more content focusing on Gnosticism to bring to this online Orthodox apologetic scene that everybody is doing things for the general mass. But I think to really be effective, we need to have sort of specialties and be really competent at those specialties. And so that's why you being able to talk, to Armenian people in Armenian, in English, about orthodoxy and about the differences, about their history, you being of that ethnicity, that is huge. And and it's like, that's the only thing that's really going to stop the historical recession of what Armenia is. I mean, pretty soon, like we said, you know, and I I see at a geopolitical spectrum, you know, again, uh, talked about this with my girlfriend, is that you, you see, you know, the the book of revelation talks about 10 regions, 10 toes of the beast. All you have to do is read Klaus Schwab, the great reset to see that they're going to regionify the, the world. And there's going to be basic 
large regions and and where Armenia is, it's going to be greater Turkey and Turkey is going to span all the way over to Eastern, I mean, Western China. So all the Kazakhstan countries, Uzbekistan, all the Mm -hmm. Stani countries are going to become Turkey. It's all going to be one Mongol nation, Uh, you know, and that's why you see the Taliban, you know, the Western powers letting the Taliban take over, um, um, take over, um, the, the Afghanistan, Afghanistan. Yes. Afghanistan is part of the, the, one of the greatest supporters of the Taliban is, you know, Erdogan in Turkey. And that's why they said, Oh, we, we don't, we don't negotiate with anybody, but we definitely negotiate with Turkey. This is all a larger process in this process. And that's why Armenia is caught in a very difficult position because they are getting ready to have the entire force of the Turkish world yeah, yeah. push onto them and the, the only where are they going to recede up, you know, to, to Georgia and Georgia is going to feel the same thing because they hate the Russians and Russia is going to be coming back. And the, so the Soviet Union is coming back. Greater Russia is coming. This is about the 10 regions of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, Canada, North America, you know, it's going to be one region. That's what's get. That's what this great process, mm-hmm. this great reset is about. And so yeah, that's why it's like you feel bad for Armenia because they are caught between literally a rock and a hard place and the people who want to destroy their heritage are on the move and they have all the power when the war broke out there were so many presentations uh, from the Azerbaijani from the Turkish people from Erdogan and Aliyev themselves of holding up maps of there was this one big red section of the 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 Turkic Turkic nations where was Armenia not and not anywhere to see you can't see it anywhere They, they, they all, they, we already know, like, for instance, in Azerbaijan, they were having uh, the, the land of Armenia, and they gave it all their own countries. Like, there's this province, uh, it was called Ararat, now it's called Zangezur, and they're teaching their children this. They're showing them maps of Armenia, present-day Armenia, with their own made-up language. And guess what I'm trying to tell them? That was the, the lands of your ancestors. And you see images of kids that are trampling and dancing on the Armenian flag, and uh, from the um, helmets of the uh, Armenian soldiers, they made a pride park where all the all the equipment that they had, that there were kid children coming in and they were mocking the Armenian soldiers. Other, just the epitome of of demonic activity. It just yeah yeah yeah. God knows how much I can handle, and um, it, it's coming. It's coming. I know I already mentioned a couple of times before the cross that we have on our necks, the cross that you have on our shoulders or in our hearts. That makes us a target of the devil. But it's not about those who can attack the body. It's about those who can put the spirit into eternal damnation. So but the question is, do you have the faith? Do you like uh, the, the older generation of that of that war? They lost their faith. But my faith just like quadrupled. Right. Like I had to. I had to. Right. Well, then, in, in a way, that's reaching back to St. Gregory. I mean, that, that's reaching back to the Orthodox Church, right? Mm-hmm. True Orthodoxy always spreads through persecution. And, as, uh, as, the, as the Turian said, the blood of the martyrs are the seed of the church. Right. And, uh, f- yeah, soil for fruitful fruits, for fruitful ground, and hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, there's a huge subject that we'll have, uh, yeah, for didn't instance. I not dive too, too deep into it, but again, I, I applaud your work and I hope you nothing but success uh, because 
you know, uh, Armenia maintaining its identity as Armenia, I think is good for the world. And it's good for uh, an ancient, ancient people that are find themselves uh, highly at odds in the 21st century. And to be, it'd be a shame for them to, you know, by the 22nd century to, you know, no longer be in their home homeland. I'll do everything in my power by his grace, but it's not by my will. It's by his will. Right. Yeah. Well, amen. Brother, um, brother David, what can I say? Thank you very much for a whole di- diversity of subjects, but it's only, it's only perfect that the genuineness was uh, right up there. Brother David, thank you very much. Um, I wish you nothing but the very best, of course, in your ministry and the work that you're doing. And uh, uh, as I said before, like the, the number one criterion of someone having on my channel is the love for their faith. And it's the, the way you're putting yourself into it. It's just amazing to see. And I wish you nothing but the very best. And hopefully that by the grace of God, that you're growing as a man and that all the endeavors that the Lord has put in your heart that it would come into fruition and uh, that we may be able to learn a lot more from you. So nothing but gratitude, nothing but appreciation. And uh, we'll keep, keep uh, in contact. Well, thank you very much, brother. I appreciate you having me. And, and again, uh, feelings are mutual. And so God bless you and your ministry. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best and uh, as well as your family. And, uh, you know, I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. Thank you, brother. You too. Merry Christmas and uh, happy holidays. You as well. God bless. Bye, everybody.